Good morning. Please join me in reading Genesis 25, verses 19 through 26. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Cammie. Uh, And if you would just join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. For your word, we thank you that you speak to us new and fresh ways with fresh insights, that your spirit is one that is active uh, in us. And I pray that that would be active among us. And taking my words, taking your words and applying them in fresh ways to, to hear for each one of us what we need to hear from you, that you would be meeting with us speaking into our hearts and drawing us to to see more of your worth, of your value, of your sufficiency, uh, and of your goodness and our dependence and and the beauty of us being able to be dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're uh, starting a series this week on the life of Jacob. And the theme for this series, which is actually going to take us into the spring of 2023, uh, it's God's redemption of the flawed. This is God's redemption of the flawed. And as we will see, um, Jacob is a flawed character. And, and that's also who we are. That we are all deeply flawed. And God works and he redeems in that. And so the passage today introduces our main character, Jacob, and and his brother, Esau. And it gives us their origins. It gives us their their birth stories, uh, their families. And it also gets into the the birth stories and the origins of their parents. uh, And and sort of their separate lineages. and, And then the circumstances around the birth of these two twin boys. And I think one of the questions that occurs to me when I sometimes read passages like this is, why? Why is this passage in the Bible? Why is this so important? Why does God, what does God want for us to get from this, that this particular part is spent in such kind of detail? 
right? Especially recounting the, the lineage and origins of Isaac and Rebekah and going back into that, right? Who, who are the father and mother of Jacob and Esau. Now, I don't know if there's anybody here who is uh, into genealogies, and there's, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to uh, track that. Sometimes it just happens as you get older. Uh, but I, I think one of the timeless, the universal reasons for genealogies is that they, they speak to, they get into and explain who we are. Now, isn't that the case? I mean, you think about what is one of the first questions, or you, ever, you meet somebody new, what is one of the first questions that's going to come up in your conversation? Where are you from? <laughs> Where are you from? That's, uh, that's what, it's, it's always going to come up, and it's not only uh, that that question is asked as some sort of witch hunt to find and shame anybody from California, right? that may be part of it, uh, but, but it's also right, to get into, well, who are you? What can I expect from you? How can I fill in in my mind somewhat of how I can get to know you and, and how you are going to be interacting? So I have some categories for that. And this is really one of the, the earliest shortcuts that we try to take in order to build up our understanding of who another person is, right? So I have a, a bit of a clear picture of who this person is, what I expect. Because where we come from is going to profoundly shape who we are. It's going to shape your values, your tastes, your preferences, your perspective on life. And so there's going to be differences, and that's the case whether you're moving from one country to another country, and that's the case whether you move from one town to another town. There's, there's going to be differences based on that origin. But let's take, for example, if you grow up in a small town right, where everybody has been there for generations on end, that question isn't going to do you much good anymore. Right? Well, where does this person come from? So what do you ask instead? The questions usually asked is, Who's your dad? Oh, who's your mom? Right, and that, that's going to serve the same purpose. Like, oh, okay, yeah, you're, you're Jim's boy. You're Susie's girl. Oh, okay, all right, yeah, now I have some understanding. What can I expect from you? Who, who are you and, and how are you going to interact? And that's the case that we're getting here for Jacob and Esau and why we get some of this background uh, is understanding their context. So the father here is Isaac, and Isaac is the promised child that's miraculously born decades and decades later uh, and, and comes to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And, and then we have the mother of these twins, and that's Rebecca. Rebecca is the one, again, very providentially God just brings into Isaac's life as his servant goes and he meets her at the well. And Rebecca is also Laban's sister, we find out here. Now, all of these details are important because all of these are part of their life story. All of them are part of their, their origin and their family backgrounds and their family stories and structures that are going to shape Jacob and Esau and, and the type of lives, the type of men that they become. And one of the takeaways for us from this introductory passage is that lineage and location matter. Your lineage and location matter. 
And that's to say that God has made you exactly who you are and put you exactly where you are for a reason. And so you don't have to get outside of that. You don't have to get beyond that. You don't have to sort of transcend your family background or your origins or or things like that in order to reach your full potential. Rather, what happens is that God works through, he works through those existing channels, which remember that he has orchestrated, which they have their pros and cons for all of us, and he uses those things to bring us to a closer relationship with him to a fuller and more mature version of ourselves through those structures around us. So God brings redemption and growth and renewal in often very unexpected ways, but but he often, I might even say most of the time, uses very ordinary means. Just the, the people that happen to be around you, the circumstances you happen to be in, that's what God uses as a vehicle. And so the main point for this sermon is we need to look for, we need to be on the lookout for God's unexpected and undeserved redemption. We need to be looking out for God's unexpected and undeserved redemption. And so in this passage, we'll look at Rebecca's plight. We'll look at God's election. And then lastly, at Jacob's grasping. So we can see here uh, God's unexpected, God's undeserved redemption in the plight that Rebecca finds herself in at the beginning of this story. So Isaac and Rebecca, they get married at, uh, Isaac is about 40 years old when this happens. We don't, we don't get exactly how old Rebecca is, uh, probably based on context, based on cultural norms, probably a teenager. Uh, but however old she is, we find out that she is barren. And Isaac, of course, he knows his story. He knows his background. He, he, he's been shaped by this, how he was this promised child that came to his mother who was barren years and years and years later. And so as Rebecca is barren, he starts praying. And it tells us that God heard this prayer and he answered And we don't find out until verse 26 that it took 20 years for God to answer that prayer. And there's a lot going on here, but one thing, at least, is that God is beginning to establish this pattern that we see play out throughout the whole Bible of God working in special and powerful ways through miraculous births. And that leads all the way, of course, down to Jesus, right, who comes from the line of Isaac and from the line of Abraham and, and Jacob. And, and there's a line that I, I really like from John Piper. I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but it, it's something like, in any given thing that happens, or in any given thing right, that occurs in our world, God is up to a thousand different things. And we, we might get to see one of those. 
So in anything that happens in our lives around us, God is up to a thousand different things. And if we're lucky, we might get to see one or two of those things. And we got to keep that in mind when it comes to us trying to read or discern, well, what was God's will in that? Why did God do this or that? Or why did God allow this to happen? Now, I think we can understand, we get this sense as you read throughout the Bible, that we know God is responsible for, God, God is the ultimate cause of everything that happens in this world. Right? That's from the rising of the sun to the outcome of your kid's little league game. All right? Ultimately, it's God that's responsible. But there are certain times and there are certain circumstances where God really likes to underline that fact. He really likes to highlight that so that he makes sure that he gets the credit for what's happening and no one else. And so uh, we can all appreciate that although every birth that happens is a miraculous work of God's grace, that is really going to be highlighted, that's really going to be underlined when you have been waiting 20 years barren for this promised expected child and then suddenly you're pregnant with twins. It's going to be pretty abundantly clear to you, okay, definitely God is at work here. And part of what God wants to drive home to us is that whether we see it or not, God has a plan for everything that's happening. And as I said, we've got to be very careful how we handle that truth. And although that is always the case, we, we know, or at least we should know, it's not necessarily always helpful to bring that up. You know, for example, if somebody's just like lost a child, it's not necessarily helpful for you to say, you know, God has a plan for that. that that's for them to, to hear and to experience or feel from God. So Rebecca is cued in, as you would be, certainly after waiting for 20 years for a, a promised child to continue this line, Something special is going on. And she starts feeling this violent struggle inside of her. And she, as any mother would be, is alarmed. And so she, she, she wants to go to God. And remember at this point, she doesn't know anything. She doesn't know that she has twins. She doesn't know anything about this. So she essentially goes to God and asks, why me? Right? Why is this happening to me? What do you want me to know? What, what do you want me to, to take away from this? Is there anything you want me to change or do with this? And she hears that, yes, God is actively involved, and he has a plan that's tied up with everything that she's experiencing. And and this struggle within her is actually foreshadowing the lives and the trajectories of these two sons. They're going to be two nations that are going to struggle against each other, Israel and Edom. And, and that's part of what's going on here. And so, although for us, right, we might not get the level of detail right, that Rebecca gets here, it's important for us to know whatever we're going through, God's hand is involved. He has a good plan for, for what we're experiencing. He has a plan to redeem his people in and through whatever we're experiencing. So let's turn and we're going to look a little bit at God's detailed plan. And I want us to pay particular attention 
to God's election of Jacob. It says in verse 23, this is what God is, is explaining. He says, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Now, there is just so much foreshadowing. There's so much foreshadowing here of, of setting up a paradigm, even in the births of these two boys, of what, what their lives are going to look like, how that's going to play out eventually. And, and more than that, there is also a foreshadowing of how God works, how God works in this, how God still works today to save people. What, what is God what is God look, working? What does that look like? Now, I, I know when you come to the, the topic of election, uh, this is a tricky topic. It tends to be when you, you bring this up, uh, people are going to have strong opinions uh, about this and, and going to be rather sensitive sometimes about those opinions. And there are, I will say, there are Presbyterian pastors who love to turn every sermon into a sermon on election. Uh, and, and I will say that is a terrible distortion of the Scriptures. But I, I will say that in this passage, there is a sense in which it is actually all about election. That's kind of what, what this passage is, is getting at, because it's about God's power to work, God's action, God's choice, God's plan. And it has in view of this God's gradual redemption of Jacob that will happen. Because I, I don't know if you maybe you don't know the story, you've forgotten how it plays out. Jacob becomes Israel. His name is changed to Israel. Jacob is Israel. The father of this entire nation of God's people. That's, that's who this is. And as I mentioned in the beginning, we're going to find out very quickly, Jacob is a very flawed guy. A lot of problems. So we see here, right at the outset of this story, God's election and the mystery of that. And I'm zeroing in here on election because, frankly, that's really one of the key ways the New Testament treats and uses this passage. And one of the things that we're supposed to get from this, that we're supposed to see out of this, is that your salvation and my salvation, if you are a Christian here today, it is not due to anything intrinsically better about us. It's not that I'm smarter Right? or I am more spiritually sensitive, or, or I'm more humble, or, or just even because of the, the dice roll of who my parents are. That's not how this works. Right? And, and incidentally, one of the things that that means for us is that we should never determine in our own minds whether anybody else is more or less likely to receive Jesus. Because that is clearly not how God is working. Here's what Romans 9 says about this passage. I'm starting here at verse 10. You can go there if you would like. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. That's key. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here you have these these two boys. They're in Rebecca's womb. There's no actions. There's no choices. There's no accountability, good or bad. And God chooses one, Jacob, and he rejects the other, Esau. And we find this really hard. (laughs) All of us find this hard, or at least you probably should find this really hard. And that's because of the sense of justice that we have that God has given to us. This is challenging. And I also want to acknowledge I'm trying to delve into the great mystery of election as one point in the middle of a sermon. All right, so uh, somewhat unsatisfactory. And, and so I would commend to you if, you, if you want to understand more about what the Bible has to say about this, I, I just I offer to you to, to read through slowly right, and think through and, and pray through this whole chapter uh, of Romans 9 and, and what is God trying to say in, in this chapter of the Bible? But I, I want to just to say something, right? I want to try to offer what I have found, I, you know, maybe it's helpful, but I, I found can be a useful shortcut, right? In trying to get some grasp on what is going on in this, this mystery of election. And that is, a lot of times, we, we have difficulty with election, and it comes from asking the wrong questions. So what, what will happen, we'll come up against a, a passage like this in Genesis, right, or, or in Romans, and we'll think, you know, why doesn't God choose Esau? Why does God reject Esau? That doesn't seem very fair. And th- that's the wrong question. The question isn't, why doesn't God, why doesn't God choose the Philistines or the Hittites or the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Ammonites or all of these other peoples, all of these other nations around Israel? The the question instead is, why does, why does God choose Israel? Why does God set his steadfast love on Jacob and never forsake Jacob? Despite the fact that Jacob turns out to be a scoundrel. And left to our own devices, we got to realize we are all in the same camp as Esau. None of us are naturally inclined toward God. None of us have any interest, naturally, in in knowing God, or loving God, or serving God. None of us want God on our own. So, you've got to understand, as you think about what goes on here, it it is not as if Esau goes through his life thinking, you know, man, I I just wish I could have this close, loving, personal relationship with God, but he just keeps blocking my number and not returning my calls. 
No. Now, Esau is very happy to take care of Esau and not ever really bother with God. And this is what makes election such a challenging doctrine to understand because it is not as if there are not active choices made on the parts of both of these men, Jacob and Esau, as their respective lives play out. And this is what makes this this issue of election very hard to grapple with because we do have accountability. We do have choices. And God calls us Today, he calls us every day to make a choice. You have a choice right now, today, and tomorrow to to accept Jesus, to receive Jesus, or to turn away. Let me offer one more note about election before we, we move past this. And that is that understanding election really is a good deal like understanding this whole sermon. And that is that it is about undeserved, undeserved grace and redemption. That God's grace to you and me is 100% always, before you were born, and now, and forever, undeserved. That's what makes it grace. That is what makes Christianity as well different from every other lifestyle, every other philosophy, because you don't do anything. You don't be anything. Down to your very DNA, as we can see in this passage, in order to deserve it. And I I want you just humbly suggest, right, and, and you know, just try this on, right, as, as you think about it, but I, I want to offer that I think one of the, the biggest causes of our unhappiness is that we don't believe election. <laughs> and just, just bear with me, I, I, there, there's a reason. And, and that is that I believe one of the deadliest enemies, right, one of the deadliest thieves of our joy and our contentment is a spirit of entitlement. It's a spirit that says, I deserve. I've earned. And that is the opposite of the spirit of election. The spirit of election says, Wow, God. I, I can't believe, I can't believe that you would choose me. That you would keep loving me after everything that I've done. If you can do that for me, you can do that for anybody. That's, that's election. It's, it's looking for God's undeserved Grace. Let's move on to some of Jacob's specific story here, because we're going to see in Jacob's uh, Jacob's birth, we're going to see some details of his character and his birth story that then play out over the whole rest of his life. So it says, verse 24, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, 
there were twins. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. All right, so here we have Esau. And um, he gets his name. The, the word for the nation that comes from Esau, Edom, and the word for red in Hebrew are very similar. Okay, so that's where the Esau, Edom, red connection is, is coming in. And we get a picture of the kind of guy Esau is going to be here at his birth. And we'll get more into this next week. But Esau is a man's man. All right? You know, he, he's, he's red. He's hairy. He's rough. And he's born that way. And that's how he turns out. And remember that these the personalities here are just that. They're personalities. Nothing more. Right? So, as much as I would like to believe it's true, it's not like Jacob gets more points with God because he's a more indoorsy kind of guy. That's not, that's not what's going on. Remember, election is God's undeserved grace. And so, here you have Jacob. And Jacob comes out. He's holding Esau's heel. And that's why he's called Jacob. So, in Hebrew, the word for ankle and heel and the word for Jacob are actually only one letter apart. Jacob just tacks on one letter to the, to the beginning of that word. And there's another reason why that's significant, because in, in Hebrew, you have Jacob, right, which means that he's, he's an ankle grabber. He's a heel grabber. That's what it, it literally means. And that's an idiom in Hebrew for someone who is a deceiver. And you think about it, and it makes a good deal of sense, right? Because what do you do if you're up against somebody a lot bigger than you? You're going to grab at their ankles, <laughs> snatch at their ankles. You know, it's a little bit sneaky, a little bit underhanded, a little bit cheap, but that, that's just what you're going to do. Right? You see this all the time in football, right? You've got these teeny little defenders out there sometimes, right? And, and you have this big giant running back breaks through the first line of defense, and he's out in the open field. You've got these small little guys have to make a tackle on him. He got one shot. <laughs> it's to dive at his ankles. Try to trip him up. All right, or you can think about Think about running behind somebody, jogging behind somebody, and instead of trying to, to work your way around, instead of trying to push your, your way past them, you just trip them up by the ankles. And that's the kind of guy that Jacob turns out to be. He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He's always grasping. He's always trying to grasp onto the person in front of him, usually his twin brother, in hopes that by pulling him down, he can make himself feel better. I'm sure you never met anybody like that. But this is a pattern, this is a template that plays out over the entirety of Jacob's life. He's constantly operating with this inferiority complex. He's, he's constantly trying to supplant and displace anyone ahead of him by any means necessary. Jacob is very shrewd. You could almost say conniving. He is very opportunistic. And like I said, we're going to see more of this next week, but you begin to see as you get to know Jacob and Esau, turns out they are both rather unsavory characters. 
And, and so they are both full of just jealousy and pride and selfishness and rivalry. And you start to read this story. You start to read about these characters. And, and you think, sheesh, where are the heroes? Where is somebody I can root for? It's nowhere to be found. You're not going to see an Isaac and Rebecca either. They've got their own problems. They've got their own baggage. And we're meant to see that the point of this passage, right? in many ways the point of the whole story of Jacob, perhaps the whole story of the Bible, is to look for God's unexpected and undeserved grace and redemption. God is the hero. God is the one who chooses and loves and works with Jacob in the midst of all his particular flaws and his patterns of sin and his self-reliance and his grasping. And God is going to pour his undeserved grace and love into Jacob's life in order to bring him to a real relationship with himself. And throughout this process, Jacob is going to change. Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, it gives us kind of a one-verse synopsis of the whole of Jacob's life. It says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. Inasmuch as Jacob is a sort of anti-hero, we've got to see as we go throughout this story that we are all anti-heroes. We are all needing to live entirely in dependence on the undeserved grace of God through Jesus. And this is where I want to close. You can picture Jacob right now, right? It will be this way. His entire life is if he's trying to climb this ladder. And he's so desperate and he's so fearful and he's so insecure He climbs this ladder the only way he knows how, by grabbing the heel of the person in front of him and pulling him down so that he can feel like he can go up. And hopefully you can see your heart exposed in this. Like I see my heart exposed. Why is it that we deceive sometimes? Why do we sneak around Now, you might not out and out lie or cheat, but why is it that we shade the truth? That we press our advantage, we practice a little gamesmanship, right? Or only tell the other person what they need to know. We got all sorts of euphemisms, I know it all, right? Of of making ourselves feel better about what we're doing. And, And I'm not saying there's not a place for wisdom and discretion and good business dealings and not being taken advantage of and all that kind of stuff. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we're not really confident that we'll end up getting what we want if we play precisely by all of the rules. And it's out of that that comes this sense of fear and grasping and uneasiness. And since I've got to get the better side of this deal. 
And it's not going to be until much, much later in Jacob's life, as Hosea says, that things finally start clicking. It's not that Jacob stops grasping. He realizes whom, whom he needs to be grasping. And that's God. He's the only one who's never left him. The only one who has always supported him. The only one that he hasn't tricked and who can't be tricked. But is the only one who also willingly puts himself on the losing end of the bargain. In Jesus, for our sake. And Jacob is going to have to grasp to him. He's going to have to cling to him and refuse to let go until God blesses him. So, my question for us is, are you clinging to God? Looking for his undeserved grace? Or are you grasping? Do you feel like you need to squeeze every drop that you can out of the people around you or the, the, the things that you're involved in in order to make them worth it? God actually wants us to be grasping. He wants that. It's very natural to grasp, especially when your world starts to shake and you need something to grab a hold of. God went through the sacrifice of providing his son for us so that we could grasp onto him and to know that he's always going to take care of me. He's never going to let me go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your promises to us. I thank you for your undeserved grace. We don't ever have to imagine or pretend that we are deserving it or, or, or hope that we're going to be able to work to deserve it better or get more of it, but it is always undeserved, and it's always more. There's always more there for us that you are ready to give. But I pray that we would just turn to you again and again with open hands and just cling and grasp onto you. In Jesus' name, amen.